Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. What an episode we had today. Rob Viglione, who is the CEO and co-founder of Horizon, formerly known as Zencash, which did not have an ICO, had no pre-mine, but during the past few years has been extremely successful, and I wanted to understand why. We talked to Rob Viglione, who's the founder and CEO. He's formerly a trained physicist, mathematician, and military officer. He actually taught Afghan citizens Bitcoin 101 classes while he was deployed. His experience allowed him to work on satellite radars, space launch vehicles, and combat support intelligence. All these different projects that he worked on for the military allowed him, as he was working on his dissertation paper for his PhD, he came up with the concept with Zencash using ZK Snarks for privacy reasons. And he's a huge, huge privacy fanatic. We talked about what it was like being in Afghanistan, teaching Bitcoin. We talked about separating money and state. We talked about their partnership with IOHK and how they've barely spent any money on marketing or promotion, just an R&D. Some of the best blockchains are the ones that have been attacked before. And we talked about their 51% attack, what happened and how they solved those problems. What's the difference between a validator, certifier and masternodes? All these questions, some super cool stories. And actually, the first two stories that were told on the show today were by yours truly. I know you guys love my stories. Give some love to the sponsors. I'll talk to you guys right after the ads. If you're buying, selling, or holding crypto, you are a low-hanging fruit for the IRS. And for many years, I've been waiting for a good solution where I can be proactive in my taxes, but more importantly, to sleep at night. Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. If the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, you can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their Crypto Tax Health Check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna, and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free regularly updated and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz so make sure you check it out bitpanda.com they are a big sponsor of ours and please give them some love because they love me untold stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company blockworks group a few months ago i approached blockworks group and i said hey guys i want to do a show untold stories can we make it happen 
and these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, this show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm here today with Rob Viglioni. Rob, thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Charlie. Thank you for having me. We we started talking about some cool topics earlier, and I wasn't gonna like talk about some of those topics, but I'm going to now, and I want to like jump right into it. And we're gonna get into some of the other topics of talking about Horizon. We're gonna talk about uh, Zendu, and I want to. I have a whole progression of 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 data. Your your background in history is so cool. Like just you know teaching Bitcoin to 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 Afghanis. I mean, just some crazy stuff. But we started talking about Puerto Rico, Panama City. And I know this is the untold stories of of my guests, but I want to tell you a funny untold stories. So um, you're trying to move to Panama or you're trying to move to to Puerto Rico. You're, re- you're really locating your family there. Congratulations. And I want to ask you about the whole Act 22, Act 20 thing. But um, because there's a huge, huge tax benefit that I know a lot of people have been starting to hear about. And I know these things sometimes take a long time. But going back to Panama, so um, the funny story is that we tried doing it in 20, in 2012 or 2013. It was me, Eric Voorhees, Ira, Roger Veer, Trace Mayer. Trace was there. And um, my friend Thomas and Eric's fiance. And it was like a bunch of people. And we rented this like two story Airbnb on the top floor of in the El Congrejo district in, in Panama City. And it was like epic. But then we realized like I realized two years that I, I couldn't actually make the move. So I went home. But we did try. Well, I, I, I did it myself. In fact, I've been here for a little over a year in Panama uh, and I love it. Uh, so I, and I have to say, so you're, you're a bit of a legend here in the Panama Bitcoin crypto community. So and that's actually... Uh, you know, how, not how, I, I've heard of you, obviously, because we met in Germany uh, some years ago. But uh, it, it, was, it was interesting to hear those early stories and how they kind of resonate with the, the Bitcoin community here. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was those people, but there were a lot others. Panama was seen in those years as the first place outside the U.S. that maybe Bitcoin people can move, live, do business. That was like the thought process. Now, after that, you know, there were... There's dozens of other countries. You have Malta, whatever, whatever. You have Singapore. I mean, you can you could pick and choose now, but that was Panama. So I almost like I almost like like use the analogy here in this situation because we we had we had went. We didn't know anyone either, but we met a lot of people, and we had learned that everyone in Panama loves Bitcoin. And um, after most of us went it went home after that first month, Eric Voorhees, you know, and Ira and a bunch of others, Gabe Sukenik. They all stayed, started their companies. Eric ended up moving home, but um, a lot of people um, stayed there. And so kind of the way I look at it is like, it's like, you know, those early stories of like settlers trying to settle a region and they they go there and they try to like settle and the land and then they they they, they get like famine and death and, and all these like plagues and stuff. And then so they all either die or they sail home, you know, in sadness and like a hundred years later, a group of people move there and they actually are able to like cultivate the land. And then they give, <laughs> they give like credit to the ones who couldn't make it a like, hundred years earlier. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in that second batch that's, that's come here and it's been a great time. In fact, um, you know, there's a very small, but very, very like a uh, passionate Bitcoin crypto community here. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's been a great time, but my days are short here. You, you nailed it with the other thing is we're moving to Puerto Rico for, uh, the Act 20 and Act 22 opportunities that are there. Let me ask you a question. I've I've done the research about Act 22. Michael Michael Turpin is one of my... Cl- Actually, I literally spoke to Michael Turpin six minutes ago. Like we were just <laughs> chatting on WhatsApp. Um, a ton of my friends, I can name you on both my hands and feet, people that I know, people that I'm close to that moved to Puerto Rico. And and I know you have to stay there like, like uh, exactly half the year. But mm-hmm. these are some people that literally love it and they never leave. They just stay. It's their full-time home. It's their home now. 
But right. I guess the question I have for you is, I've done the research. It seems, you know, the, the Puerto Rican um, revenue um, agency, I forget what it's called. Um, I still feel like it's a little bit of a gray area. Are you confident enough? Are you, are you confident? Has, has there been any precedent with the IRS at this point? Um, just so for people to understand, if you move to Puerto Rico, establish residency, there's a bunch of other conditions, but essentially instead of paying, you know, your normal tax rate of 20 to 50%, most Americans do, you're only paying like 4% or something like that. Exactly. And yeah, it's been I, kosher I mean, by the Congress yeah. in a way, right? It's been kosher by right. it. So what's going on? I don't right. want I mean, no, no. The fundamental thing is Puerto Ricans have, uh, you know, a, a very interesting deal with the U.S. So they get U.S. passports, but they don't have the right to vote in the U.S. So, so how they can you can... have taxation without representation? Right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the federal government doesn't tax Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has its own independent tax authority. And this is really a response to economic depression and some crises that they had. They're trying to attract, you know, not just capital, but also you know, talent to the island. Uh, to try to reinvigorate the economy. Has anyone ever been, has anyone tried to, to like, you know, okay. So do you know how, um, when it comes to laws, laws are only good when they've been tried and tested in court. Has any, has this ever been tried or tested? Has anyone ever been, been contacted by the IRS and been able to fight back, back successfully? Has that happened yet? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I really want to know the answer. Yeah, I feel like that would be something very important. But I also do know a lot of billionaires that are saving tens of millions of dollars in in federal taxes by moving to Puerto Rico. So you would, and these are not people that are like tax evaders. These are publicly, these are public right. people that you and I know that are moving there and, and are very active with local government. And so you would think, and, and I, I would safely assume that these people are like, you know, crossing their T's and dotting their I's. Right. And, you know, my personal perspective on all of this is if you are using one of these programs, you shouldn't just go there and take advantage of it. You should go to Puerto Rico and actually try to make a difference, try to contribute to the island's economy, try to contribute to society. Right. Like, yeah, all exactly. You contribute. Stuff, but actually, yeah, exactly. Don't don't just be a leech. Go there and actually make the place better. I do but like it, I like those countries that offer citizenship where you have to donate like a crazy amount of money. You know, an amount of money, like millions of dollars. There's some of them that do it for like hundreds of thousands. But yep. and then instead of like, don't just buy real estate, like donate money. I think Puerto Rico requires you to hire a few people. I like that. Yeah. And and donate to local charities, actually. So that's one of the conditions. All right. So you I want to get into your we could talk here for hours. I want to get into <laughs> your whole story. You're the CEO and co-founder of Horizon. Horizon launched in May 2017 as Zencash. And a lot of people who are listening to this show at this moment, they're going to say, why are you getting an ICO shill on the show? Well, first of all, fuck you and don't listen to my show anymore if you don't like <laughs> that. But second of all, I my job on this show, besides for historic, you know, documenting history is my job is and I'm not a, I'm not going to be here. I'm, I'm not going to be a judge of projects. There may be projects on this show that. I talk about that end up being frauds and scams, and there could be projects on the show that I call frauds and scams that end up being not. So, you know, listeners, I will do the best I can, but understand that I, as the years go on, history is constantly being made. And so 2017, 2016 are starting to be part of this history that we have to document. And although we can make fun of, we can punish, and we can troll, and we can talk shit on, the actual scams and frauds, it's very important for us to highlight the good projects, the good companies, and the ones that are actually doing things to further our industry. So with that said, with that said, in May 2017, you guys launched Zencash. What was so cool about Zencash, this is what I love. So you, so Zencash was actually originally forked from Z Classic, which if I recall was derived from Zcash, which was originally a clone of Bitcoin. Horizon had no pre-mine and, and you did not do an ICO. Um, very, very cool. Very interesting. And you've been rewarded. You know, you've been rewarded if you look at your, your and I, I don't like talking about token price, but if you look at your token price during the bear market, yeah, it, it went through the ringer like everyone else did. But somehow you were able to maintain like a very um, good liquidity on the token. You know, there was there was mm -hmm. positive liquidity. So congratulations for that. Thank um, you. But. Forget Zencash, forget Horizon for a second. We'll go into that a little bit later. Tell me about you. 
By the way, are you a doctor yet? Can I call you doctor, Dr. Rob? What's the deal? You know what? To, to my mom's consternation, I still haven't defended my dissertation. So no, no. Oh, so you need to you defend it? it? I need to defend it. Yeah. Okay. And, and part of that story was I actually launched Zencash as a hobby project while I was wrapping up that dissertation. Really? Uh, and yeah, so it, it really wasn't meant to be, you know, this grand project at all. Um, and, you know, it's very humbling to have gone from there to here. Um, but it was really just meant to be an experiment in a few different domains that I thought might be improve the ecosystem. And and actually, you had a great interview with author Brightman that I, I think really tackled on why do we even have, why do we want a lot of experiments in this industry? Or why do we want a lot of projects? And it's all about trying out different things and seeing what works. Because ultimately, a single project has a single opportunity set of real options that they can exercise on, on any any path, whether it's a tech path some sort of social economics governance path or whatnot. And, you know, honestly, we need a lot of experiments. We have no idea. There's no way in the world we're going to just, you know, a priori figure out the optimal best thing for society, you know, to infinity. I completely, it's just not happen. I completely agree. And you're making these transitions very easy for me um, because <laughs> I think the social experiment is, is getting into a transitional phase. What do I mean by that? Um, you just released a white paper, Zendu, and you're and and essentially, you know, I just got it this morning. But from what I understand, you launched a a side chain that allows all other chains to talk to each other um, with a lot of different desired features, um, mm -hmm. and it also provides a way for you to transfer coins between main chain and side chain. But also, from from what I understand, um, it allows you to go from from one chain to another. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, so what it is, and just to put it in context, so we have an alpha version. Uh, we, we have basically two versions of our sidechain technology. The first version of the sidechain tech is one that is totally decentralized, permissionless, all those things that we want out of a blockchain technology, but it relies on an honest majority of certifiers. So basically, on a sidechain, have to be certified you know, when they go back to the main chain because we don't want the main chain to know anything about any sidechain other than valid valid transactions occurred because a, a certificate was received in the main chain that says so. That, I think that's unsatisfying for commercial uses. You never want to tell a business, hey, sorry, you know, there's something called a 51% attack in blockchain. We lost your money. Right? That's not going to fly for an enterprise. So we created Zendu, which the paper that, yeah, I wish I could have sent it to you earlier, but we just finalized it yesterday. And I wanted you to at least know that it exists. But what it does, and this will be published you know, publicly next week, um, it obviates the need for an honest majority of certifiers. So it uses a recursive snark technique so that you just get a Boolean output of you know, what happened in the side chain is valid or it's not valid. And then the main chain accepts that. Uh, and, How and though? So it, it's a configurable snark circuit. So it, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all snark. The snark circuit itself is modified for the consensus of the side chains. And like you Sorry, said, for, for the listeners really quickly, can you explain, can you explain ZK snarks and how it works? Because it's now being used in, in maybe even a dozen different blockchains. Right. So it, it's a, a fundamental tool from zero knowledge cryptography, a class of cryptography that, that basically says something can happen and you could verify that it happened without actually seeing the, the details of what was, in, what, what was in it. And Zcash actually brought this to market in, in our industry uh, for coin transfer. Uh, so it's very elegant because you could see on the blockchain and you know, all blockchain nodes could validate that a transaction was, was correct. It didn't violate the rules of consensus without seeing who the transaction was from, who it was sent to, or how much was actually sent. But you know, what other projects are doing and what we're doing as well is we're abstracting this, this technology to do other types of functions other than just coin transfers. You know, for us, it's securing a sidechain to a main chain. That's the primary use of snarks in, in, this, in the Zendu system. But then also on the application layer, using zero knowledge for data privacy. Uh, and the really simple example that I like to think of here for you know, our enterprise clients is, um, you know, we have a, a big invoicing client we could talk about, but basically uh, we, ha we have a whole bunch of invoicing transactions that occur. So you could track the same merchant of you know, their payment history. Do they actually uh, pay their bills on time within what range? What slippage do they have on that? Uh, and, and you could actually derive a credit score without actually seeing any of those invoicing transactions themselves. So you can say you know, very safely, this is an A-rated or AAA-rated company just based on zero knowledge proofs from the transaction data. And, and I know this gets 
a little bit abstract, but you know, it's hard to really simplify it. Well, you did a decent job at it simplifying it. So thank you. Um, very good job, actually. But going back to, so I want to go back really quick to, um, going back to socioeconomic, uh, experiments. So now you have all these different blockchains, you have these different, you know, you, you alluded to in, in the Arthur Brightman episode up until now, it's been, we're, it's been, um, users using blockchains, speculating on them. You have these different projects and chains and coins and tokens that are doing different things that are trying to, to get into different industries or disrupt, um, and we're seeing that progression. We're still seeing that happen nowadays. But what I think is going to start happening, especially when you have um, different type of new protocols like Zendu um, and, and you have side chains and you have liquid and you have um, atomic swaps like Atomic Wallet is doing. What I think we're going to see happening in the next year is a further experiment. And that experiment will be now that you allow people to transfer um, from chain to chain with a good user experience and a good user interface seamlessly, pri- you know, privately and securely, will token investor loyalty still exist? Mm, why that, or why a, not? That's a great one. I think the answer is yes. And, and you know, my view of this marketplace is that uh, in any mature marketplace, especially one that spans the globe, which ours does, we don't really care about geographic borders, you're going to have a, a lot of different types of you know, blockchains you know, for different purposes. And also, you could even have a, a very simple region-specific blockchain or a national blockchain, not one run by a government necessarily, but one that has loyalty from a country. There are many reasons for why humans choose to you know, have brand loyalty to something. So I, you know, I, this is where I, I differ with author's point in, again, that same interview, but I, I don't believe that this is a winner-take-all environment. Maybe for certain functions, absolutely. But there are many things that blockchain brings to the table that, you know, it's just too heterogeneous. The world is too rich, too varied. I really don't view like a very homogenous world where it's, we all do the same thing. So tell me how, how it went from your doctoral thesis into Zencash. What were you theorizing? What were you trying to prove? And what, do you, what, ha- what have you yet to defend, doctor? <laughs> so, so my, my dissertation uh, research is on, and first of all, I, I had a very, a very, very fortunate to have a permissive department that actually let me study Bitcoin back in 2014 in the academic area. So for you, 2014 was, yeah, we're way into this new Bitcoin thing. In 2014 in academia, this was like, you guys are crazy. What, what are you thinking? But my department actually let me study it, I think, at the time because I was a first year PhD student. And, you know, they, th- they think, well, per- first year PhD students don't know anything. So let him do whatever he wants now, and then you know we'll change that and mature him in the next five years. But what happened was, um, you know, the research that I was doing was looking at why Bitcoin was trading at significantly different prices in different countries. And we may think about this, okay, duh, like we know that there are tons of market frictions out there that would cause this, things like capital controls, you know, loss of financial freedom in certain countries. So you can see people in Venezuela, Argentina, in places that have high political volatility are willing to pay premiums and the premiums persist. So arbitragers don't have the, the very clean mechanism of long shorting to drive these, these ARB profits or, or drive the you know, convergence in pricing. So it, it sounds like a very no-brainer, but I used some, some sophisticated econometrics to actually prove what was going on. And it's really, it, it's related to the idea of governance at the national level and really harm that governments can do to their economies. And you can see proxies for you know, channels that people look to get around the harm that their governments are causing locally. What type of um, harm do you think you think can be can be changed? Like, I mean, I look at embezzlement, I look at graft, mm-hmm. corruption, um, even things like, you know, like human trafficking and, and sexual mm-hmm. slavery. A lot of these are like like the governments where where these men or women are being trafficked. You know, these governments most of the time are like, you know, they know about it and are getting kickbacks for it. I mean, that's to me, that's criminal. So that's horrible. <laughs> but uh, I mean, specifically here, I was really looking at economic harm. Um, but uh, of course, there are many harms. Really, what a government is, is a force of monopoly. And there are many things that could happen with that force, right? No, that, that's not in our industry. That's a, a fairly, you know, yeah, widely held. We study belief, it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, right. But I mean, so, but governments, and I'll take the, the controversial element here is, and I spent the first half of my career working for the government, you know, like on you- the, in the military, right? So there, there's, there are some things that, you know, governing services, as I think of them, that humans would want 
whether or not they were a monopoly. And I is, think that many things we could decentralize and we should. Is there an industry larger than ours? Is there a group of people, you know, larger than ours? Are there companies other than yours and, and the ones in our industry that are theorizing, uh, speculating on, um, experimenting, not just mathematically, but, 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 you know, using, um, uh, using social metrics, um, to study governance and all these different topics, you know, for the future of a digital world than, than our industry. Is there anyone else doing these experiments? Hands down. Absolutely not. No, we're leading the way. So, and that's so, why I find it such an exciting industry. One of the side, I'm just, I'm just literally winking this as I go along. Some of the, so I think one of the, the side benefits that we'll see down the road as governments move to be, to have more digital governance, I think they'll cherry pick and pick and choose some of the, the, the cool ways that we've been doing governance in our industry. And I think that'll be like a very nice and positive side effect because we're not just experiment. And this is, I keep drilling this into to everyone's head is that crypto is not just about computer programming, math. It's not just about finance and it's not just about, um, you know, writing code or anything like that. It's not about computers. More than half of it is us humans. How do we act? How do we react? How do we spend money? How do we save money? How do we vote on governance? How do we, do we like to vote direct voting? Do we like to vote for miners? Do we like to vote for masternodes? Do we like to, do we want to do staking? What, what if a country came out? What if, let's, let's talk for a second. What if, what if a, um, what if Norway tomorrow said, Hey guys, we've decided that we're going to, we're going to, um, reward every citizen with a hundred tokens. And these tokens can only be used for staking and voting for our, for their politicians. Mm -hmm. How do you think that would play out? I mean, I mean it's honestly, cool. It would be fantastic. So, I, I mean, what we lose in the modern nation states is we lose the granularity of decision-making. And it's really this kind of delegation by proxy to supposed representatives that over time lose that like representativeness, right? So I, I, would, I love these experiments. In fact, we're, we're launching next month uh, a research project with NC State, North Carolina State, um, with a cryptography group there on zero knowledge voting systems. Like we've already prototyped one, but it's one based on pure stake. So you get to vote and your votes weighted proportional to your stake. Like, you know, a lot of the voting systems in the blockchain world right now, but I find that dissatisfying. That will actually be what, because you always have a semblance of fairness and we want to weight things in different ways. And, and we can talk philosophy of what's a fair voting system, but there are other aspects to skin in the game other than just financial resources like someone could devote their life and all of their you know, productive energy towards contributing to an ecosystem and maybe they should have more skin in the game than someone that just kind of pops in every now and then but happens to have a large stake right but of course the guy with a large stake also should have more of a say than someone that has no stake right so there are complex dynamics here that we have to be rational and at least experiment with different weighting so that's what we're doing with our our university project there's a lot of words that are being thrown around nowadays. It was a lot in 2017, but you, you used one. Um, validators, certifiers, masternodes. What are some other verbs that or nouns that we're using for this? And, and do they all kind of mean the same thing? <laughs> uh, I, I think you know. That's really the set. I mean, we, we have our own classes. So our infrastructure is broken into some parts of the infrastructure that's compensated, right? So people that run... run and also provide some sort of stake. We call them secure and super nodes. So that, that's our nomenclature, but it really is a kind of this class of master nodes that you mentioned. I guess I guess what I was alluding to was when, when Bitcoin first launched, Bitcoin launched under the assumption of like radical decentralization, mm -hmm. radical decentralization, um, I would say. Um, some projects have went on to say, we want to be radically centralized, maybe Ripple XRP or whatever. Um, and then you have a lot of projects that kind of fall somewhere. They dot the spectrum, right? Yep. Um, validators and certifiers, masternodes, and there are, there are other you know ways, and they all they shouldn't be lumped in, except for under the category of governance, because that's what they they allow. They enable mm -hmm. governance in in a not radically decentralized way. Have we figured out how to maintain like decentralization and how to prevent attacks? Um, have we figured that out yet? No, not at all. I, I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we think 
we've we found the the holy grail for what's going to make a, a, a perfectly decentralized or maybe you say optimally decentralized because you know pure decentralization would be potentially not something any of us wants but there's probably an optimal decentralization that maximizes something one depends of the, on why i argue for heterogeneous industries because things what do you mean by that i didn't know you uh, argued I mean, for that so, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I argue for a, a very heterogeneous industry, meaning that there's there's room for many different types of projects because there are many different goals or outcomes that we could be, be trying to maximize, right? One blockchain could try coin transfer and, and preserve wealth. One blockchain could try to maximize merchant adoption. One blockchain could try to maximize or, you know, reducing poverty, right? There, there are many different things that that people may try to you know, achieve using this technology and they're all valid within those domains. And there, there are many different solution paths to achieve them. I have to take a second and like think about what you're saying, because while I agree, um, I completely agree, actually. I just we have to be careful of people taking advantage of of us wanting to do those things by by creating, you know, um, scams and frauds and and other totally things agree. like that. But that's that's fine. I think we've moved past that and speaking of moving past it um you know you're only as strong as your weakest link and when 2008 happened um 2008 2009 mm -hmm. right before bitcoin one of the positive side effects that came out of that was stress testing for banks how can you know how can you 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 keep your money somewhere how can you stake your life and your future when when you don't know what's the worst case that can happen for this bank you know what I mean? For this company, like what's the worst mm -hmm. case? And so right. um, we saw uh, a spattering of 51% attacks on a lot of different coins and tokens uh, not very long ago. I think it was back in like almost a year ago, back in June. Including um, ours. Yeah. So you guys had a 51% attack. Um, what did you learn from that? What had happened? You know, how to play out and what type of positive things came out of that? Because it's important. It's almost like, I won't trust a blockchain until it's been hacked. Right. It's true. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So two, two big things for us. One is organizationally, and this is something that, you know, it, it's, I think, often lost in the industry. Behind every project, you have a group of human beings that are doing things to maintain that project and, and expand it and push it forward. Um, and what happened was on the operational side, I think the team performed fantastically. So we, we knew we weren't the first chain to be 51% attacked, so we planned for it. If it did happen, and we just basically kept, kicked our our uh, you know a crisis management system into place and minimized the damage immediately. So everyone everyone from every division of the organization sprung into gear, and this was at like two in the morning, I think, on a Sunday. So it, it was terrible. Uh, but everyone you know just kind of sucked it up and did what they had to do, and we minimized the damage. On the technology side, we said, okay, this is BS. We, we're we're not going to be held hostage to these kinds of you know, a-holes who are just pillaging these projects. So let's design an engineering solution to kill this. And that's exactly what we did. So the very next day, our engineering team started architecting a solution, which was basically, we, we addressed the primary threat vector, which was uh, delayed block reporting to the network. So you would have yes. a malicious miner mining a whole bunch of blocks in private, and then, you know, executing some transactions and, you know, moving funds around and then, you know, in bulk, pushing all these blocks to the network and then invalidating their double spending. This is insane. So we said, this, this is let, let's modify Nakamoto consensus to you know make this not possible. So what we did was we we added a delayed block penalty. So it's a two check consensus. It's the most accumulated proof of work, just like Bitcoin. But then also we, we uh, penalize blocks that are um, actually delayed to the network. And we have a threshold there, you know, for this perfectly reasonable, like the, the penalty doesn't kick in until after four blocks. So the fifth block, you'll start getting a penalty. And there's no reason in the world why you should be four blocks behind as a node. Unless, you know, Russia or China just literally disconnect their internets from the world. And then we have a convergence process anyway. So it's not like that would even be the end of the world. So, so basically, the bottom line is we upgraded significantly the security of our chain because we were attacked. Are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the IRS? Are you worried about the IRS auditing your crypto returns? Then you need Crypto Tax Audit. They provide IRS audit defense designed for the crypto owner. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself 
including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them, and we have been for a few months now. They love me, and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. That's but, the best yeah. way. So have there been other attack vectors how, did that like light a fire under you guys to say like, maybe we should look into what are the other attack vectors and how Big can time. we fix them? Yeah, Big of time. course. And I'll tell you the biggest one. So for us, because we bootstrapped from Zcash, you know, essentially Zcash technology stack. And I can tell you the reason for that. And, you know, I know it's been such a fun conversation. We've been bouncing around a bit, but we launched Zencash using the Zcash tech stack, you know, through Z Classic for some reasons. Um, because we wanted to learn about zero knowledge because we're big privacy advocates. I think this is a huge business you know, like a huge value proposition to the world, one for on the commercial space and one for humans, like the private space. Um, but there's a big problem with the, the type of architecture that we adopted. And that's last year. So early 2019, actually, the first thing we did engineering wise was, uh, you know, working with Zcash. We have a great relationship. We plugged uh, a major uh, potential inflation bug in the zero knowledge pool. So there's this kind of dark pool, consider it as a layer on top of our, our normal you know, horizon blockchain. And unfortunately, it's kind of like a black box and there could be inflation going on in there that you wouldn't know about. And you know, there was unfortunately a bug discovered in Zcash uh, that we inherited and we worked with them. Um, by all means, like credit to Zcash and their cryptography team for identifying it and solving it. But we integrated the solution into our system and we realized that sparked another security, like, oh, oh shit moment for us where we said, it's unacceptable to have the entire money supply ever be jeopardized because of a bug in, in a, a dark pool. So what we did now was the sidechain technology with the Zendu. And the point here is, you know, at some point, and this is still controversial within our community, but I want to bump our shielded pool to a sidechain. So you would have, in, in the binding constraint here is I want a, a flaw or seamless user experience. You know, from the wallet side, I don't want a user to even know the difference between clicking send private transaction Today versus when we bump this to a private, you know, to a side chain. But what Why? it does is it provides it provides a natural firewall. So with our side chain tech, you could never have inflation that impacts the main chain. So you commit Zen into the side chain, and then you could never withdraw more Zen than you've committed into the side chain. So even if we had a bug in a complex zero knowledge crypto on the side chain, it would never be able to impact the money supply. And that's the critical thing is. We have to we have to modularize these systems so that a bug in one component doesn't destroy the entire system. But why would Zcash and why would you guys launch without having every single transaction be private? I never understood that. Mm. I never understood that because like only like I, the last time I checked, like only three percent of all Zcash transactions were actually private ones. Right. And really, like privacy doesn't work unless everyone's private. If even mm -hmm. one person is not doing a private transaction, the whole system is flawed. Mm, it, it's the, the likelihood of identifying a transaction increases. But still, I, I would still say you know, from a, a likelihood perspective, it's still asymptotic on the tail or still on the tail of that, that likelihood. But you, you, you understand where I'm coming from of with course, this, right? You, you need, yeah. 
What's that famous like quote, like in order to hide the signal, you have to create noise or something like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I totally agree. And I'll tell you why we don't do it. And, and the reason why we would even consider bumping a shielded pool to a side chain is because the way that I look at a main, a main chain is I want just a very robust, I want it to be like a tank that's just slow, lumbering and extremely secure because I want all the experimentation and all the functional stuff to happen on their own side chains. So money would have its own its own blockchain that happens to leverage its security with the horizon uh, main chain right but then within that blockchain everything will be 100 def- default private right so if if we bump that if we make that in the main protocol uh, which there's good reason to do it as well that would completely limit the application usage what you just described is like bitcoin's whole scaling thing by the way and everyone's saying that it can't yeah. scale or whatever but Things shouldn't right. be done on the main chain. Why is that so complicated? Like we keep seeing problems with Ethereum over and over and over again. And, and I still feel like there could be a bug in Ethereum right now and we wouldn't know about it and the whole thing could break. Totally agree. And why I love our Zendu architecture because it, it just, you know, we have a very simple, secure main chain and it's not controversial. Easy governance, you know, high majority, super majority type of governance structure in there for changes because we don't want it to change significantly over time. Um, Robin, you know, just security improvements. In yeah, 2017, please. like a lot of projects, 2018, a lot of projects and companies spent so much money on just marketing and promotion and billboards. I'm talking about like coins and tokens, not even like companies, you know. Um, you guys have done the opposite. You spent a lot of your money, most of your money on just R&D, R&D. You're coming out, you're, you're patching holes, you're developing your blockchain, you're hiring people. You've partnered with my super good friend, Charles Hoskinson from IOHK. Congratulations to that, by the way. Yep. Um, you've, you, you rebranded you. to Horizon. I want to ask you about that. Um, have you, mm-hmm. have you, have you felt that it's been difficult to compete or get your message out, um, you know, with other blockchains because of that, you're not spending as much money on promotion and, and marketing? Yeah, and that was by strategy. So we, we didn't really care about that uh, up until now. What we cared about was building a core, strong community. So our community is probably extremely small relative to Bitcoin. And we focused on R&D. We focused on getting our architecture right. And we focused on, importantly, building significant business distribution channels for our products. And that the industry... But it's very clear from just like the, the venture world, you have to have distribution channels for your products. Uh, so that, that's what we're focused on. We've built ridiculously strong foundations. And now we're finally circling back and saying, okay, now people should start paying attention. Tell me about the rebrand. So the rebrand was, you know, we were Zencat. It was a, a cryptocurrency focused project. And when we designed sidechains and going way beyond cryptocurrency, it, it just made no sense to call ourselves cash. So we still kept Zen in the name. And the, the point here is, you know, we really are, we consider ourselves very forward looking. We want to be on that innovation frontier, both in technology and in the social space. And so how did that process all go about? Uh, so we, we, we had a, a very intensive, you know, hybrid community team and actually even branding agency process. So we, we took it very seriously. We, we did surveys across our community, across our team members, uh, across major stakeholders, you know, like DCG as an example, being a major yes. stakeholder. Um, so we wanted to make sure that everyone understood what we were doing, why we were doing it and contributed to the outcome. Yeah. I'm asking because you have, you have, you know, CEOs and you have lead devs of dozens of blockchains listening to this show that may think about rebranding down mm-hmm. the road. And, and you've had one of the very few, you know, seamless ones. So, um, there's a lot of knowledge to be had in, in some of these like almost like mundane things, right? Yeah. No, I, mean, I think one, one thing is this is a very tech heavy industry and often we just focus on the tech. Tech is absolutely critical. It's a key differentiator, but uh, I, I would argue as equally important is getting your organization right. And it doesn't have to be a corporation, doesn't have to be a fixed org structure, but at least the, the way that the human beings working on your project coordinate with each other, make decisions and take action has to be refined. And if there's one thing we do well is we, we have, you know, some fantastic organizations within our ecosystem. Let's go back. Like, let's go back some years um, to your military service. So thank you. And what did you sure. do over there? Uh, so by over there, you mean Afghanistan. I was there for a couple of years. Uh, I did operational intelligence for everything from regimental combat team support in Helmand province, 
um, to you know uh, Special Forces Command in uh, the Bagram area. Um, so a variety of roles, everything from you know originally trying to reduce the incidence of um, IED or improvised explosive devices uh, fatalities and casualties, which is horrible, like, uh, absolutely horrible. So abstract away from you know any politics and don't think about this as war, but just think about this as a humanitarian crisis. There's so much collateral damage from both sides of that war. And IEDs are one of the most devastating, you know, like honestly irresponsible weapons to ever be deployed. You know, for every, every you know, U.S. casualty that happens from an IED, there's probably, you know, 50 to 100 civilian casualties and, and people don't care. That's the problem. So I went over there to try to, you know, and my role, just to be very clear, was more on the data science side. So trying to use data science to, you know, uh, you know counter IEDs from, you know, an offensive perspective, but also defensive. And then it, it kind of evolved from there. The biggest project that I left was um, helping with security for the 2014 Afghan elections. Happy to say it was the most peaceful elections uh, that, that happened in probably Afghan's, Afghanistan's history. Uh, so that, that was a very successful project. How, uh, tell, me about, tell me about elections in Afghanistan. I'm so <laughs> curious. Like, I'm literally, tell me about like how voting works. Do people yeah. understand voting? Like what's with, you know, the red ink on your finger? Like, it, this is so, we could do a whole nother show on this. <laughs> totally. It's, I'll, I'll say the bottom line, the big takeaway is it's very tribal. And people basically vote with their tribes. Um, so it's not really, you know, from our, our conception of, of a democracy, it's not like that at all. It's, you know, tribe members of tribes vote with their tribes and the leader of the tribe basically dictates the way it goes. And then this ripples to the government. So you have government agencies, police, military, you know, people that set up and administer polling centers. They do it oftentimes endogenously to affect the outcome uh, by, by, you know, skewing things. And one, one simple example I'll give was, I found in one instance, uh, well, I, I found systemic differences in poll. When there's a difference in military or, or government uh, leadership of a province, uh, then the ethnic group that they're governing, there was always like discrepancies in you know polling polling centers. And I should probably leave it at that. But uh, you can see that it, it's a very complex situation. That you know it was. I'm happy that it worked out, you know, okay. You know, and these things will never be perfect. And, and you know, best of luck to Afghanistan. And hopefully, hopefully the country finally achieves peace one day. I think we also like vote tribally here. We just don't admit it. Um, Completely we vote, agree. We listen to our friends and our family. And we, for the same reason that most people use the accountants that their parents use. Yep. Yep. Um, it's very similar. And just to give, so I grew up in, in a very, 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 very religious Jewish community in Brooklyn. I, I had since left that community, but, um, that community is like 75,000 people strong. And that community was able to like, um, make sure that local government was on their side and always looking out for them. Because when it came to voting time, I remember my parents would get an email from like the local, um, rabbinical authority and this would say these are the candidates you have to vote for wow my parents would vote for them without even like flinching wow, wow. that's the way it was and i yeah. never but the thing was because i grew up that way i didn't think that was odd i thought that was normal right. people voted in their families their tribes their their communities and to some extent it's not a negative thing i, I like voting blocks in fact let's talk about another voting block i'm a felon and in florida did you know in florida we are, there's 1.6 million felons out of a 15 million person population. So that's around 11% of us are felons. And as of last year, because of constitutional amendment four in Florida, um, felons are now disenfranchised and we're re-enfranchised and now we all got our voting rights back. So now we're a voting block. So um, I did know that. And the reason I knew it was because I heard your interview on, was it Crypto 101? Oh, probably. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. I'm so very really excited good. to see yeah. if politicians start like I my 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 a good friend of mine who's also a felon um, want wants to start like some sort of like felon newsletter type of thing. But I don't know if I want to do that. Right. But I, I'm curious to see if local politicians start putting out content and, and messaging towards felons who can now vote. I'm curious right. to see, especially in Florida. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And, you know, also another thing in our little, in, in our little crypto world that we live in, there, there is an echo chamber because there's so much, say, as an example, libertarian content. And, and I'm a libertarian. I'll, I'll just say that. 
But there's still this echo chamber where I remember years ago, I was consuming all of the same information as all of my other libertarian friends. And we're basically just amplifying each other's ideas, like very non-critically or un uncritically. Um, so that, that's also a problem. So whatever tribe we find ourselves in, we also have to challenge ourselves like constantly. What do you mean? Uh, I mean, challenge all of our challenge, all of our ideas. It, it could be something as simple as what type of policy has what type of effect. Right. And, and you know, one very simple example is like Peter Schiff, you know, just refusing to bend on Bitcoin being useful or Bitcoin being, you know, value greater than zero in the long run. Like it, it's just, to me, it's just insane. Refuses That's a perfect to example yeah. of, of someone who's dug themselves in. Right. And the thing is, um, I know Peter. I know Peter's brother. Like we used to have lunch in Brooklyn together. Andrew, Andrew Schiff. Peter's not stupid, nor is Andrew. Peter's right. very smart. And I bet you Peter fully understands the benefits of Bitcoin. Right. Fully. The right. problem is he's dug himself into this position. Exactly. So that's what I warn people is try, try not to get so involved in a particular position that you refuse to ever challenge your beliefs. It's so it's so crazy. And, and this is a, a good lesson to learn. Um, you know, as, a, as an echo chamber, um, it's good to learn. I have followers that I disagree with. So my, I, um, people ask me like, who should I, who should I follow, you know, on Twitter and everything? So I follow like, um, almost 500 people It ebbs and flows between 450 and 500. And I, mm -hmm. I do take care of like my followers, you know, like I, I, I'm always on top of it and it's a perfect, um, it's a perfect mix of people who, um, I agree with and people who I don't agree with. I don't want to be living in an echo chamber. And a lot of people that I follow, like I, I mute sometimes here. I'm following you now. Oh, you got a lot of <laughs> awesome. followers. Look at that. <laughs> Thanks. And Hey, actually one other example of this is my RSS feed. So my news feed that I look at every day is probably 50, 50, just like you said, it's 50% on, you know, what we'd consider in the U S to be the right 50% what you would consider in the U S to be the left. Um, and, and just completely, I try to diffuse the sources that I, I consume information from, even if I completely disagree with them. So what's next for you? Um, you're moving your family to Puerto Rico. Um, where are you going to settle down? Did you choose like a neighborhood yet? You don't have to obviously name it here. Right. Um, <laughs> we did. We did. We're actually closing on a house uh, this week. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the next thing for me, honestly, just pretty obsessive with building the Horizon ecosystem. It's cliche as that is. So we formed uh, we, a spinoff company called Horizon Labs last year to do the commercial arm of what we're doing. We like to build those commercial distribution channels for the products we build in Horizon. And right now we're just really uh, you know, obsessed with building out that team and building out the tech, building product. Uh, so the next thing on our uh, radar is, is really to build our product team, maybe in Austin, Texas. So that's where we're officially HQ'd right now. But I'm obsessed with building a product team. So if anyone's listening and you're a great VP or product candidate, please reach out. Sorry for the shameless I, plug. No, no, I do have a lot of people listening that that will contact you because um, I get one of the best things from this podcast is our people that um, contact me after, you know, you can email me at cs at charlieshrim.com or untoldstories at charlieshrim.com. My email's right on untoldstories. And I get some of the best emails and I really do try to, to answer, um, every email and I get, and I'm pretty good at it. In fact, awesome. so, someone wrote me like, um, a three page letter and mailed it to my house recently. And, <sighs> and so to the list, to the person who did that, like, first of all, thank you. I've read it and I appreciate it. Um, I will say that it's a lot easier to email me. I will see the emails. So you don't need to write letters to my house, but it kind of was a cool throwback to my jail days of getting, you know, handwritten letters. I feel like when people write handwritten letters, the emotion and the, and the realness is there versus typing. So totally I will agree. respond to that gentleman, but normally I prefer emails over letters to my house. <laughs> um, awesome. so so I want to, I wanted to ask you a question earlier, but we moved on too quickly. We've been, we've been running all over. Um, we've been, <laughs> it's been fun. I've said Charlie. It, it really is. Um, so do you remember earlier I asked you about, uh, we mentioned very briefly about masternodes and we mentioned, um, you know, the, your, your coining your, your token over, um, the past few years. And, and when I did the research, um, 
you you guys gained a a, a nice share of the masternode like like industry because so there, so for the listeners that don't know there's a masternode industry these are people who understand masternodes who have money there are masternode funds they go to dash they go to horizon they go to the dozens and dozens of hundreds of coins that offer you know various interest rates but there's a lot that goes into it right um how have you guys been able to 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 get that significant you know a very very decent share and therefore having a very stable uh uh and very a uh, liquid uh, token price and i'm very very curious to hear this answer i'm extremely <laughs> curious no seriously yeah I'm, no it, it's a fantastic question because it gets at the heart of crypto economics right? i've been wrecked by right. masternodes before i've lost right. my shirt investing in masternodes and and losing money um, so I'm very curious to hear your answer. Right. So probably the first thing I want to say is not all masternodes are created equal. So what investors need to look at is more than just ROI on, on the node, because you should, what you should do is normalize ROI by some quality metric. And I, I throw out FCAS, this fundamental crypto asset score, is one normalizing metric. There's probably many that you could look at. Um, but you have to look, there's probably only a few really high quality masternode projects on the market. But investors are constantly, especially smaller retail investors, constantly, you know, putting tons of money into very low quality ones because they have really shiny high ROIs that they're publicizing. But if you lose all your capital, that, that's not a very good ROI. So what you should do is probably triage the projects on the market based on some quality metric. That, that's the first thing I want to throw out there. Um, now, the next thing is how we did it. So we, you know, and this is actually getting to the basics of why we even launched Zencash at the time was, you know, I was a finance PhD student and I wanted to explore different experiments in economics in, in these blockchain systems. So what we did was the fundamental premise is for me, in theory, to have a sustainable ecosystem, you have to match uh, contribution with reward on the margin. So there are many people that contribute to a blockchain ecosystem. And I, I argue that if you have a pool of, of resources to subsidize contribution, it should probably be weighted based on the contribution types, not just 100% to miners. That's my personal belief, and that's what we've done. So what we did with the node system was we recognized the people that run our software are actually contributing valuable services to the network. So let's carve out part of that block subsidy for them. Right? We, we created two node classes. And the point there was we wanted to create a class that was very low entry point on the economic level. And we wanted to create another class that was higher you know, higher entry point, but actually people that were larger, you know, maybe staking funds could participate more efficiently. So we created two classes. They have actually, it's not just about staking. It's also about running hardware and running hardware that really benefits the network because this was meant to be a precursor to our sidechain system. You know, our sidechain system is going to be proof of stake. So we need a lot of staked nodes to actually run our sidechain software. That's why we built out 38,000 nodes in our network, the largest in the industry intentionally, not to lock up supply, but to actually have high quality servers running our software around the world. That's exactly what we've done. So we had really low entry point economically, and then also a pretty decent reward. So we've been for a while, I think one of the highest ROIing projects or no master node projects out there, it's like 20 something percent returns to run nodes. So not not bad, and we've built out a very large network around that. What what is your mining reward? I mean, well, do you do you have miners? What is your you know your treasury fund? How does how does it all work with with block propagation mm -hmm. in terms of, of of governance like that? Not not like governance of voting yeah. for hard forks, but sure. for monetary. Yeah, so it, it's very simple. It's sixty percent goes to miners, twenty percent goes to nodes. You know, split ten percent between each node class, and then twenty percent goes to a treasury. And with respect to the treasury, again, re referring to your, your Tezos uh, interview, uh, I love what they're doing with governance. And I love what Decred's doing with the governance, at least from voting, kind of like getting sentiment directly from the community. That's where we want to go. We're just taking a more methodical approach. And, and I can say Tezos took years, so very methodical as well. Sure. Um, but you know, for us, it's we're, we're starting with academic research, prototyping a ton of stuff. We built out the sidechain architecture to actually house our voting system on the sidechain. Just so again, if something get, is screwed up on that, we don't want it to destroy the entire ecosystem on the main chain. Uh, so we're, we're also de democratizing or in process of democratizing that treasury pool. Are, are you think you'd move like move away from mining into more full time proof of stake? Uh, not not in the near future. So you know, I, I can not, see it. Yeah, you know where I, my thoughts on proof of stake. So, so what I can say is, my my thought is, I think real security right now comes from proof of work, and that's why we're keeping our main chain proof of work. Um, so we want to beef that up and, and maintain it, and then the side chains, are, which are deriving security from the main chain, don't necessarily need their own proof of work. 
Now, something I can say about our sidechain technology is, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, we could run any type of blockchain consensus as a Horizon sidechain. Uh, the first one that we're launching is Ouroboros Prowse, so basically Cardano's consensus mechanism we're using as our first you know, uh, sidechain that we bootstrap and, and hand to the world. Um, but we're also going to probably, uh, on the enterprise side, and in, in, you know, I'll get a lot of scoffs for this, but from a business perspective, I think it's fantastic. We're going to integrate uh, Hyperledger as a Horizon sidechain. We're going to oh, integrate a proof-of-stake version of Ethereum as a Horizon sidechain. So they, it'll be solidity, solidity backward compatible with every single Ethereum or Ethereum Classic um, contract. Right? So you could launch any type of consensus as a Horizon sidechain. I think that um, proof-of-stake doesn't work until you have millions of token holders with extremely, like, with distribution that's extremely like spread out. And then you have people who literally compete with each other. So you have like people that don't like each other and are constantly competing at that point. Proof of stake is great. Um, but it could still be hijacked. Even it could still that. be hijacked. I right. know that's the problem. Right. I, there's a fundamental flaw for that with that. And I, and the thing is like, my mind is open. I want to be, I want to be convinced. I want my brain to change. I'm on this show four days a week. I'm talking to <laughs> those brilliant people, yourself included. Um, and I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to, to understand how they are willing to, to put their whole life's work on proof of stake at, you know, where it is now, I guess where it is now. And I understand the environmental impact of proof. Don't get me wrong. I love yeah, the environment, sure. but, um, it's not waste. Proof of yeah. work. I, I'm tired of people saying it's waste. It's not waste. Totally agree. It's not going right. to some bullshit that doesn't exist. We're building a global financial system here. We're literally freeing people here. Could not so, agree more. But one thing that I'll say, Charlie, is, is so our technology, you could run the same tech stack. So if you love proof of stake, you could run that proof of stake tech stack. And, and I'll give you a great example is delegated proof of stake chains that rely on a very small set oh, of certifiers. Yeah. Right? So, and, and I know you were very active with BitShares, Steemit, right? Me too. Actually. You were also BitShares guy. Exactly, exactly. But you know, the critical flaw is you have to trust a couple of dozen guys yeah. around the world. Yeah. But speaking of now, which, Dan Larimer is coming yeah. on the show. He finally agreed yesterday. Oh, cool. Tell him to put EOS as a Horizon sidechain. That'd be fantastic. I will. <laughs> okay. Well, do you know Brendan, Brendan Bloomer, the CEO of Block One? I can introduce you to him. He's a very nice guy. That would be awesome, actually. But what this does is we, we solve that problem. You could run your, your delegated proof of stake tech stack as a sidechain, get all those benefits of it, but run security through Horizon. Very cool. I didn't know that you're now actively trying to get other blockchains to, to potentially run a sidechain on this and connect them all together. I mean, that's the key. If you can get, if you can get what you need to do, and I'm not going to give you advice like for your business, but what could be cool is if you can find like the top four competing chains where like the, the, the community are at each other's throats. So like take like Bitcoin, Ripple, Bitcoin SV, <laughs> Tezos, and then just get them all to run their own side chains, you know, and then and make it all connectable, um, make the UI super, super good. And then this will be an experiment. And I think you'd be very surprised because you have a lot of rational people that really love these projects that'll now start using using uh, your tech to switch between all, all of theirs. Now, if you take all of chains that are very similar and they're all like lovey-dovey already, I don't know if it'll be as successful. I, I don't I, know. I could no, be wrong. No, I, Probably I, I am wrong. Agree. And, and I, I won't <laughs> say much more because this is in our little Horizon World top secret, but we, we are looking at doing exactly what you just said. I can't wait to, to yeah. hear more about it. Rob Viglioni, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, hey, how can... I'm a follower of you now on Twitter. How can other people follow you? How can they follow what's going on? Do you have a newsletter? Like, tell me about um, totally. what's, what's the call to action for my for my listeners. Uh, I can say our our ecosystem is much more interesting than I am personally. So I would go to horizon.io or horizon.global. And it's really a one-stop shop for everything. We're very active with you know Telegram, Discord, all the usual suspects. Join the newsletter because we actually have some great educational resources along with that. So we have a Horizon Academy we launched to really just teach people how to, you know, use use crypto safely, right? Teach them about blockchain, crypto, wallets, and then also Horizon. Um, so really, really, it's kind of a one-stop shop for everything. Please do, you know, join, be active. And again, if, if there are any VP of product candidates out there, that's exactly what I'm obsessing on right now. The 
the the other question I wanted to ask you your your PhD. So I want to do it too. Um, I've wanted to do it since since I was in university like ten years ago, um, and I've wanted to to get a PhD just for two reasons. One to prove myself that I can do it. Yeah. Because because when I was in like you know kindergarten and first grade and second grade, my teachers all told my parents that I was an idiot, and I guess I'm <laughs> laughing at them all the way to the bank. But two. Um, the, the other reason is I want people to have to call me Dr. Shrimp. That's literally <laughs> would be my sole motivation. That's funny. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I recommend it like for me, it, but it depends on your personality, right? For pure business people, it's probably not going to be much value add. For me, this was a personal thing, right? I didn't need it financially. I wasn't looking for a career necessarily. And, you know, I'm really happy for my current career. So, but it, it's a personal achievement, like you said. So point number one for you, totally agree. And point number two for me is my brother is a medical doctor and my mom constantly reminds me that my younger brother's a doctor and I'm not. So how do you go from, oh, that's pretty funny. How do you go from, so did you go from like a, a, a bachelor of science or did you have a master's? Like what was your progression? No, no, I, I did uh, my, my early academic work in physics and mathematics, uh, minored in economics. Then I got an MBA focusing mm. in finance and marketing. Okay. Then I, I went back for finance, switched to social sciences. I have a BSc in, in economics, so I was trying to see if I can jump directly because I don't want to get a master's or MBA. Oh, There's no need for it. You can. No, for sure. You, you can. Uh, you, you, it's not mandatory that you have to have a master's degree, but a lot of the workload maybe maybe uh, i don't mind taking five six years to do it you know i i want to i i'm looking for a school that i can you know the local school that i can register for but spend but and have someone that could be my mentor you know that that works in the school but but i don't need to be there and Mm -hmm. if i take five or six years to do it that's what i want to do but also my grades weren't very good i did graduate my gpa was i think like a 2.9 or something i know people think (laughs) i wasn't a smart kid in college like I don't even know how I graduated. I was stoned the whole time. And then I got into Bitcoin. <laughs> and no, seriously. So th- literally, yeah. like, I'm this fucking kid who, like, I'm just skating through school. I'm, I'm smoking in the Target parking lot. I'm running my electronic startup. And in my junior year, I find out about Bitcoin in a, in a chat room. And then here I am 10 years later. Like, I just can't believe, like, the progression of my life. But anyway. <laughs> that should be interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I, we, we, and now we're going to end the show. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem, to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.